Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We are located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we want to be a community of faithfully present people with God, self, and others. We hope that this encourages you to do the same wherever you are. And thanks for joining us. All right. Hey, Redemption family, welcome back to my house. My name is Alex, and I am the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. And I wanted to say something to those who live here in Seattle or in our area that might have tuned in over the last few weeks online, and you might be interested in joining our our church and maybe even getting to come worship with us when we can get to do that again, God willing, in the future. If that's you and you're going, I want to find out more about the, the vision, doctrine, theology, philosophy of ministry, how we do things, please shoot us an email. Uh, Email us at connect at redemptionseattle.com, connect at redemptionseattle.com, and uh, we'll be quick to follow up with you, getting you everything you need to know about our church. Uh, Another thing, uh, today we are celebrating Palm Sunday, and so uh, we are not in a traditional church building. There is no, we're not going to bring a a donkey into my living room. and uh, reenacted Easter pageant. Rather, you're here in my living room, and yes, this is my son's train track behind me here. I, I left that up just because he and I worked on it, and uh, we're probably going to play with that over the weekend again, and it's fun. So I thought, what the heck, just leave it here. It's fine. So with that being said, uh, yeah, today's Palm Sunday, and so we're going to be looking uh, at John chapters 11 and 12, and uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus's entry into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, this is an account that is famous, and it's in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also talk about this particular scene in Jesus's life and ministry. Um, in those synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar in, in a lot of their content. Sure, they arrange the material a bit differently and uh, emphasize different points and key themes and so on. But overall, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. Then there is when, when juxtaposed up against John, who wrote his Gospel very late, probably 90 A.D. or so. Uh, John remembers uh, as an old man, he, he remembers his time with Jesus as a disciple and very much so aware of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have written. He also writes his gospel and he emphasizes different things. And every time you see John even mention or speak of his own self in the gospel of John, he always refers to himself as the one Jesus loved, the one Jesus loved. And so if you look through John's gospel, you basically can break it into two books John chapters 1 to 11, and then John John chapters 12 through the end. The first 11 chapters are dealing with the life and ministry of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. Uh, And then there's a strong break. Not to say that Jesus is no longer the point of the gospel. It's still going to be about the life and ministry of Jesus and the person and work of Jesus. But in chapter 12, there's a clear break where John goes, okay, I'm going to dedicate the remainder of my time talking about this last week of Jesus's life on the earth in the city of Jerusalem. And there's lengthy discourses that he has with his disciples. There's lots of sayings that are in John's gospel that are unique to John. The sayings that Jesus says from his cross, I thirst, or 
how he forgives his enemies and things like that. Or there's a lengthy prayer recorded in John 17 where Jesus is praying to the Father. and A lot of discussion about the coming of the Holy Spirit as, as Jesus will depart in the days to come. Lots of unique things in, in John's Gospel. But it's here in chapter 12 where there is this unique break. And so I want to begin right here in verse 12 of chapter 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right. So the next day, what does that have to do with what, 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 what time did this happen? What day? What was transpiring just before? Well, if you back up in chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, we, we can piece these things together. And uh, in chapter 11, I'll summarize briefly what had happened. Jesus had a good friend named Lazarus. And Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. Lazarus became extremely sick. We don't know what kind of virus he contracted, what kind of illness he had. We don't know how he was, what he was sick with, but he was extremely sick, even to the point of death. And so they send word to Jesus and said, you got to get here to Bethany. It's a little town about two miles from Jerusalem. Get here. Lazarus is sick. If you get here, you can heal him. Uh, and your friend will live. Well, Jesus delays for about two days and then uh, shows up. And sure enough, his friend had passed away. They, he died and they had buried Lazarus. And Jesus shows up, gets word that his dear friend had died. And I just love what Jesus does. It doesn't say that Jesus makes a cliche let go and let God, or God must have needed another angel in heaven, or something ridiculous like that. Rather, Jesus, as God, shows us how to be wholly human, because he is 100% man. Jesus enters into the human experience and goes to a place of death and enters into that and experiences all that we do and models for us. What are we supposed to do when we're faced with death, dying, disease, pain, and loss? Jesus does not teach us to just dismiss our pain under the rubric of God's sovereignty or under the doctrine of the providence of God. Jesus did not teach us to bury our heads in the sand and just pretend that it doesn't happen and it doesn't hurt. What does Jesus do? Jesus wails. Jesus grieves. Jesus sobs. The Greek is extremely strong. It, it says that Jesus uh, was so emotional that he snorted. It was it was a, just like a horse. Like he was loud. It was obvious. He was devastated. And in a world filled with pain like ours is right now, with thousands of people that have died sick all over the world where hospitals are filled with patients. Part of the Christian response is, yeah, God's sovereign, for sure, for sure. God is sovereign. But Jesus shows us we are to enter into that experience and weep and wail and grieve over real loss. I need a Jesus that can weep. 
and so do you. And he does. And it doesn't stop there, though. A few moments later, Jesus says, roll the stone back. And they object to it, but he says, do it. Roll the stone back. And they roll it back. And then he speaks into the abyss. He speaks into the cave. He speaks into death and undoes death and resuscitates Lazarus. Lazarus comes forth. He comes up and he emerges out of the grave. In his grave clothes, Lazarus is alive again. Okay? Now, in chapter 12, verse 2, we read, So they gave a dinner for him there. That's Jesus. And, and, and Lazarus was there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So now Mary. Mary uh, comes on the scene and she has this, this pint of, uh, of perfume. And she pours it out all over the feet of Jesus. This is the second time Jesus' feet are are bathed and uh, anointed. One is with another woman who uh, was deep into sin and Jesus had uh, cleansed her life and she's weeping over his feet and so on. This is a different occasion. On this occasion, Mary takes this this pint of uh, perfume, which would have been her dowry and would have been worth a year's wages. A dowry. And she shows up and pours it out all over the feet of Jesus, filling the house with an amazing fragrance, saying, essentially, I pour out my life on your feet. I pour out my future on your feet. Judas is there. Judas objects and says... This is a waste. We could have, we could have, why didn't we sell this? We could have made a bunch of money. We could have made a year's wages off this. And then we could have given that to the poor. But John tells us that Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas actually uh, helped himself to Jesus's money bag often. That is, Judas would steal from the ministry of Jesus himself. But Jesus corrected Judas. It says that uh, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it. Or, or rather, she's, she's kept it for the day of my burial. So you have the poor with you always, but you don't always have me with you. In his rebuke, he interprets Mary's action and, and, and teases it out a bit more. She kept it for the day of my burial. Well, did Mary know that she was anointing Jesus for death? No. She was giving a demonstration of saying, I trust my life to you. I trust my future with you. I... I follow you. And then Jesus goes, yeah, Judas, she didn't do anything wrong. She's actually preparing. She's anointing me for, for death. Jesus gives a, a deeper meaning to that, to that moment. Essentially, this was how a king would be anointed for death. So then, verse 9, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came and not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so the Jews were losing power to Jesus. And so they wanted to kill Jesus. But we also have to get rid of Jesus' greatest evidence of, of his power. Namely, the resuscitated Lazarus brought back from the dead. 
So the next day, this large crowd, which numbers up to 100,000 people, 100,000, had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they hear Jesus is coming to the city. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they come out, they're hailing him as a messianic figure, as a deliverer, as a liberator, as a healer, as a leader, as the one who can save. In fact, even that word Hosanna is a compound word meaning save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Save us. Just like Simon drove them out of the, in the, in the, of the citadel 150 years ago. Save us, we pray. Who do they want to be saved from? What are they in danger of? They want to be liberated from being under the Roman government that made life so difficult, so hard, all the time. Persecuted. Save us, we pray. Ugh. Was it wrong for them to call out for salvation for that? No. Everything is right with it. It's just that Jesus came to, to save them from more than Rome. That's, that's what we end up reading and That's what we end up learning later. Is that his salvation pierces deeper than than what we even experience in life. It pierces all the way down into our soul and gets all the way into and reaches far out into eternity. Save us, we pray. I couldn't help but think the other day, a couple days ago, when I began reading this passage, Hosanna, compound word, save us, we pray. That's a word that everyone is saying right now. Our whole world is saying that. And we're crying out whether to God or to a hospital or to a doctor or to a leader or something somewhere incessantly scrolling through our phones save us we pray we we want liberation from this dreadful disease save us what's the christian response to be i think it's twofold i think christians ought to be praying diligently and giving generously Seeking to, to seeking healing for our world. We ought to be praying for healing, real healing to happen from COVID-19. Praying for doctors, praying for researchers, praying for nurses, praying for working, those working in factories, making masks and, and all the labor that's going in, those getting ventilators around and those who are testing vaccines and so on. All the work that's going in. Save us, we pray. Yes, why? Because... Christians are about human flourishing. So we pray, save us, God. Save us. And, and, because we're Christian and we know that there's more to this, we're able to say, save us on the deepest level. Give us the salvation you came to give us. Not only salvation from sickness and tyrants. Save us. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sins. Save us from the, the justice, the judgment, the condemnation, the wrath of God that hangs over our head because we willfully defied our creator and our maker, the holy God. Save us, God. Give us 
the salvation that only you can give us, Jesus. Save us, we pray. Blessed is he, or welcome he, who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So we see Jesus here is the King, like King David, the triumphing, conquering King. They see him that way. He's the King. He can raise the dead. He can do anything, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus makes this unbelievably humble move. It says he found a young donkey and sat on it. For it is written in Zechariah, fear not, don't be afraid. Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And I love this humble picture of Jesus. This humble, almighty king. Not riding on a war horse like the Romans did, and not like uh, those who lived out even further east, who war kings who would ride on uh, big camels, big caravans. Jesus, the one who has the power to raise the dead, finds the most humble, most simple, most overlooked farm animal, and says, I'll ride that in to the city of Jerusalem. The Messiah himself. <laughs> on a donkey. Why is he coming in so humbly? Because he knows what Good Friday has in store. He comes in humble because he's going to stoop so low. He's going to go so far. He's going to reach down so deep so as to grab people like you and people like me that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. He's going to reach all the way down, all the way through time, all the way through history, all the way through the cross and into Holy Saturday so that on Easter Sunday he can grab your hand and rise up in triumph and rise up in victory knowing that his resurrection is your justification. Oh, yeah. So... What about these palms, though? Do you see them again in the Bible? And the answer is yes. You will be in a number that cannot be counted. In the book of Revelation, John writes this, and it's it's amazing. It's the, the same John. Uh, let me find it here. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Here's what we'll be doing. Crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You're going to be in that number. The one that can't be counted surrounded by people from with different colors of skin, different ethnic backgrounds, different languages, gathered around the throne with a palm branch in your hand, and you will not be crying out, save us. You'll be crying out, bless you, Savior. You did it. Salvation belongs to God and the Lamb. We're here. We're clothed in white. The battle is over. The diseases are cured. The the Everything that separated us from God, everything that broke us from within ourselves, everything that uh, uh, ravaged our world with tyranny, all the tears have been wiped away. All the hospitals are now empty. All the things are now made whole and well and righteous and cleansed forever and ever. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. We'll lift the palm branches and celebrate the Messiah who overcame everything, even death itself. And we will be the ones celebrating eternal life together. Yes. 
Amen. So happy Palm Sunday, church. It's at this time that I would encourage you to pause the video and go prepare the communion elements, uh, the bread and the wine. And as you, as you remember, as you remember taking the bread or wine or juice, the broken body represented in the bread that Jesus gave his life for you on Good Friday. The blood that was poured out for you on Good Friday represented in the wine or the juice. Because that is true, because that is real, because of all that Jesus has done for you, you will be in the number, according to Revelation 7, with a palm branch in your hand and a smile on your face. Remind your soul of that today before you take communion. The next thing, if you want to participate in giving of tithes and offerings, this is the time you could do so. You could click on a giving link on our website or there in your email, and you can participate in giving. And as you do, I just want to say on behalf of myself and our family and all the families that are supported uh, through the Ministry of Redemption, our staff and so on, I just want to say thank you for giving faithfully and giving generously, especially during this time of real need. Um, And lastly, uh, if you want someone to pray with you, uh, please go to our website, click on any of us that are there on our website, and we'll be happy to follow up with you and pray with you. We've got staff and elders and deacons and life group leaders that are eager to connect with you and pray with you. So with that being said, thank you so much for listening. Take communion and then join back in in worship. Love your redemption, and I cannot wait to see you face to face. Thanks again for joining us. If you want more information about our church or would like to come visit us on a Sunday, go to redemptionseattle.com.